My guest today is astronomer Dr. Jill Tarter. Dr. Jill Tarter holds the Bernard M. Oliver Chair for SETI Research at the SETI Institute. She led Project Phoenix, which studied about 750 nearby star systems. Dr. Jill Tarter serves on the management board for the Allen Telescope Array. This is SETI's new effort to search for extraterrestrial intelligence. She received two public service medals from NASA. She was named one of the 100 most influential people of the world for year 2004 by Time magazine. Dr. Jill Tarter is with me on the phone from California. Uh, Jill, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Jill, before we begin our discussion on the subjects of astronomy and research at SETI, tell us about yourself and about your education. I started as an engineer. I have an engineering physics degree from Cornell, and then I got interested in astrophysics and how stars form. So I have a, a PhD from Berkeley in astronomy. Uh, the idea of using microwave radio signals to search signals from other solar systems emerged in 1959 and 1960. Talk to us about the origin of this idea which then led to the establishment of SETI Institute. Well, uh, two physicists, uh, Giuseppe Cocconi and Philip Morrison, uh, wrote a paper in the journal Nature in 1959 in which they pointed out that uh, the rather new field of radio astronomy might be providing uh, some extremely good tools for interstellar communication, that, uh, that radio signals transmitted at the frequency, for example, of the only uh, atomic species that we knew that radiated in the, radi in the radio portion at that time, uh, atomic hydrogen, um, that a signal sent at that frequency could cross um, the vast distances between the stars and provide a very detectable evidence of someone else's technology. Then mm -hmm. independently, Frank Drake, who was a young radio astronomer at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Greenbank, West Virginia, had uh, came came to similar conclusions, and he built some special equipment and conducted the very first search for extraterrestrial intelligence at Green Bank in the spring of 1960. So it was an idea that was in the air and, and these two different um, places, the, these different uh, astronomers and physicists all thought of the same thing at the same time and uh, SETI became an exploratory science. Uh, Jill, talk to us about the Project Phoenix. Uh, Project Phoenix was perhaps the most sensitive and most comprehensive search for extraterrestrial intelligence? Um, that's, that's correct. Mm -hmm. And it came about because the NASA Microwave Observing Project, uh, called the High Resolution Microwave Survey, which was launched on Columbus Day in 1992 at two separate observatories, one the Arecibo Radio Astronomy Observatory in Puerto Rico and the other NASA's Deep Space Network Complex in, um, in Southern California. Um, we launched this search and it was planned to be a 10-year combined targeted search of individual stars and a sky survey um, that was going to be part of NASA's program. We launched the search in 92 and in 1993 a senator from um, Nevada terminated the funding for this project and told NASA they better not be doing SETI any longer. Mm -hmm. So what happened is that we were able to rescue the targeted search portion of that planned search and go back to the observatories, Arecibo, um, to the Parks Antenna in Australia, and to the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia, and say to those people, um, look, 
if we can find the money to continue this research, could we still have the telescope time that we had won um, for NASA's project? And they said yes, and so that's what we did. We privately funded the search, and that's how it got the name Phoenix. It was kind of rising from the ashes of congressional termination. Mm-hmm. And for the next 10 years, we actually used the telescopes that we had been planning to around the world and conducted the search of uh, the 750, closer to 800 stars over a wide range of frequencies where these antennas had uh, receivers. And that was the largest search that was done to that date. It took us from 1995 until 2004, and towards the end of the search, we realized that there was a lot more to do and that we were never going to be able to get enough time on these large telescopes, which were federally funded and were national facilities. Um, And so we decided to build our own telescope and build it in a way that was much less expensive than the traditional way of building telescopes and that would have the capability of simultaneously doing radio astronomy, the traditional kind of radio astronomy and SETI observations. So we built what was eventually called the Allen Telescope Array in Hat Creek in Northern California to do just this. Uh, An interesting point that I intend to note here is that Pioneer 10 spacecraft was launched in 1972. And after sending close-up pictures of Jupiter and Saturn, uh, it has continued traveling through and beyond solar system. Now, signals from Pioneer 10 spacecraft from a distance of more than 6 billion miles, that is 10,000 million kilometers, were used to test the Phoenix system? That's correct. Um, ev- the Pioneer 10 spacecraft had a um, a transmitter on board that provided a single frequency tone that NASA would use to track the spacecraft and to lock onto it so that it could, in fact, then capture the information that the spacecraft was downloading back to Earth. We used that carrier wave on the Pioneer 10 spacecraft every day. Uh, to make sure that our equipment was working. And twice during our 10-year observing program, uh, we failed to detect Pioneer 10. The first time was in Australia, Mm -hmm. uh, where our project actually made use of two separate telescopes at the same time in in a kind of a pseudo-interferometer. It's a way that we could um, determine that, in fact, the signal was most likely coming from a distant target and not anything nearby. Um, And somehow the clock at not the Parkes Observatory, but the telescope at MAPRA, uh, the clock lost a few seconds of time, 23 seconds. And Mm -hmm. when you're trying to make an interferometer and the two telescopes don't tell the same time, you can't bring the radio waves together in the right way to... um, to see a signal, and so um, we didn't find Pioneer 10, and we found out that the clock had broken, and we then told the computer, hey, would you keep an eye on that clock and tell mm-hmm. us if it happens again? And the other time uh, was when we were observing from Arecibo Observatory, and our second telescope was in England at Jodrell Bank, uh, the Lovell telescope there. And then as the engineers reported to us when we failed to detect Pioneer 10 and they checked over the all, all, all the equipment, they said that our equipment rack was uh, electron-starved, by which they meant that somebody had kicked the plug out of the uh, back mm-hmm. of the, the, the rack of equipment and we had no power. So uh, Pioneer 10 was a very good fiducial for us through all those years. Of course, it now is no longer transmitting. It's not being tracked. Can we say that at SETI, we use human technology to detect a possible existence of technology of extraterrestrial origin? That's precisely what we're doing. SETI is 
is called the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but in fact what we are trying to do is detect evidence of someone else's technology, someone who's op- who's modifying their environment uh, in ways that are visible over the vast distances between the stars. And, and we use, at the Allen Telescope Array, we use radio telescopes, but there are also optical telescopes that mm-hmm. are looking for signals that appear to be engineered, that don't appear to be astrophysical in nature. And we hope that that makes sense, that that's the right choice for interstellar communications. We can't, we can't know for sure. I mean, it might be that advanced technologies are busily transmitting zeta rays we don't know what zeta rays are. We we haven't invented them yet, so so we can't build detectors to find them. And if it turns out that that's the case, then radio and optical won't succeed. But if we manage to stay around as a technology ourselves for long enough to to figure out the physics involved in zeta rays and invent detectors for them, um, then we'll start using those as well. I mean, in, in SETI, we always say that we we reserve the right to get smarter because we certainly don't know everything there is to know. You co-created the catalog of nearby habitable stars with another colleague. Uh, this catalog is a list of about uh, uh, 17,000 star systems that could possibly host habitable planets. Now, this catalog was created by taking data from a previous catalog uh, containing 120,000 nearby stars and by removing those stars uh, that have no possibility uh, of hosting uh, uh, a habitable planet. Uh, Tell us about the process of identifying and differentiating those stars Uh, that have no possibility of hosting habitable planets from those that could possibly uh, host habitable planets? Well, you have to remember that this catalog that I made with uh, my colleague Maggie Turnbull, Mm -hmm. actually a series of catalogs, uh, was done before we began detecting planets orbiting other stars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we were taking data about stars and trying to figure out from the properties of the stars which of them might or might not be suitable hosts for planetary systems. Uh, We didn't want the stars to be too variable, to change their brightness too rapidly or to such an extent that it might prove difficult for life on a planet to adjust. We didn't want to have stars that were too close to other stars because we thought that it might be too difficult for planets to form. We wanted them to have a lot of metals. That's for an astronomer. That's anything that's heavier in atomic mass than hydrogen and helium because we wanted them to be able to form rocky planets around them. And we, we, we took these kinds of characteristics and said, hmm, this is our best guess. But the wonderful thing is we don't have to use that catalog anymore because we now know about thousands and thousands of planets, real planets, mm-hmm. orbiting other stars. And so since 2011 when the Kepler spacecraft published its first catalog of exoplanetary candidates, we've switched to uh, these HabCat stars to observing stars where we know there are planetary systems. And we get those from the Kepler spacecraft mission, and we get those from ground-based observatories that are also capable of finding planets around other stars and indeed we actually look at all the exoplanetary systems even if the planet that's been found is um, a very massive Jupiter very close to its star what we call a hot Jupiter not likely to be habitable but it means that there's a possibility that there's a planetary system there could well be many other planets 
besides that hot Jupiter that haven't yet been detected. And so when we point a radio telescope at a, at a star, we encompass all the planets that might be in orbit around it. And so we're looking at all of the exoplanet systems that we know about. You have briefly touched upon the discovery of exoplanets. Uh, um, and my next question is about exoplanets. Uh, Jill, initially the focus of SETI research was nearby habitable star systems. But now that we have found a number of planets orbiting around stars, how has the discovery of exoplanets changed the SETI research? Uh, you have partially touched upon this point. Uh, can you give us more information on this? Well, exoplanets are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. uh, we're so um, excited by all of these planetary worlds out there, potentially habitable real estate. It was a good theory before, but until 1995, we'd never found um, a planet around a star like the sun. So um, that's good news. If you, if you want life to evolve and develop and potentially become a technological civilization, at least in our case, planets were, were the place where it happened. And so um, we think that uh, it makes sense to look where we now know there are planets. But in fact, the statistics from Kepler and the ground-based observatories are telling us that pretty much every star is going to have planets now. They're, the planets are, are far more plentiful than stars. And so we're back again to prioritizing. And we're thinking now about uh, possibly giving higher priority to the nearest stars because we could detect the faintest signals from the nearest stars. And statistically, we can be pretty sure that these stars, even though they are going to be um, smaller than the sun because the nearby stars are almost all much smaller than the sun, statistically we know that there are good chances that they will have planets. And um, we're going to start prioritizing for these nearby red dwarfs. And uh, perhaps this is uh, relevant to the Dorothy project. Uh, in, in, in 2010, SETI launched uh, the Dorothy project, a massive observational campaign covering uh, a large number of planets detected by uh, Kepler spacecraft. Well, Dorothy was actually launched by a Japanese colleague, mm -hmm. and he, in, um, in honor of the 50th anniversary of um, Project um, Ozma, mm -hmm. he decided to, to write to his colleagues at optical observatories and radio observatories around the world and suggest that we all observe the same targets at the same time with our different telescopes and different t detection techniques. And so Dorothy is a reference to Oz, mm -hmm. and um, it's an homage to Frank Drake and Project Ozma on mm. its 50th birthday. And is this correct that the focus of this project is on the exoplanets uh, detected by Kepler spacecraft? That was that was his first choice of targets, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and since then there have been uh, several campaigns where um, yes, mm -hmm. stars that we know to have extrasolar, uh, extrasolar planets um, have been observed. And I have to say that to date there has not been any positive results from Dorothy, uh, nor have there been any positive results from any of the SETI searches that have been done uh, since Project Ozma. But um, again, it's a huge, huge... Uh, cosmos out there. Lots of different places and times and types of signals to, that could be t potentially um, detectable and we've only scanned and explored a very small part of that cosmos.
Okay, let us discuss in more detail that how is the search for ET uh, actually uh, conducted at SETI. Uh, we are searching for a radio or an optical signal that is intentionally engineered. Uh, how do we differentiate a signal that might have been intentionally and intelligently engineered from the signals that occur naturally? Well, we first start with the natural signal. We look at um, the kinds of emissions that we have historically detected um, from astrophysical sources. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the radio, natural sources tend to spread their energy over a range of frequencies, whereas we engineer signals that have a very high signal-to-noise ratio by confining them to one channel, if you wish, on the radio dial. We mentioned before the Pioneer 10 spacecraft and how we used its carrier signal uh, as a fiducial to make sure that our equipment was working. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a signal that's compressed in frequency, only shows up at one specific frequency. And nature doesn't seem to be able to do that. At least when we took a look at natural emitters and reduced our frequency resolution finer and finer and finer, we got to a point where we didn't see any structures from natural sources um, that were narrower than a few hundred hertz wide, and that's a few hundred cycles per second. Mm -hmm. So we said that, that would be a good sandbox to explore, because if you find a very highly frequency compressed signal, then you will either have found a technology and technologists, or you will have detected a new form of coherent astrophysical emission that we don't think is possible. So good place to explore, uh, and it requires different types of receiving equipment than mm -hmm. the astronomers build because they're not looking for those kinds of signals. And likewise, for in the optical part of the spectrum, we're not using frequency compression. We're using time compression. So we're looking for bright flashes of light that last for a billionth of a second or less. Mm -hmm. Again, our reasoning is that we haven't found any kind of astrophysical transmitter or transmission that has this characteristic of having a large amount of uh, energy transmitted in such a short amount of time. And so if we do detect such a thing, we're very tempted to say that's someone else's laser because we, we manufacture very bright laser signals lasting a billionth of a second or less. Um, very artificial, very unnatural looking. So these two artifacts, extreme artifacts, are the kinds of simple things that we started looking for. And now as computing capability gets uh, improved and more available, we are starting to think about looking for signals that have embedded information content which will, at least in the radio part of the spectrum, means that, that they will broaden out in um, their bandwidth. And that will make them look more like a natural astrophysical signal. But there still will be potentially detectable structure in the signal that would tell us it was information-containing and not an astrophysical signal. But it's, a harder, it's much harder to find those. And um, so we are just beginning to use our increased computational capacity to, to um, 
try and build detectors for these broader band signals. Uh, Jill, large-scale surveys of sky are conducted as part of general astronomy. Uh, is it possible to encourage astronomers and researchers that this data should also be mined and analyzed to identify intentionally engineered signals? In other words, is it possible to make the search for extraterrestrial intelligence an integral part of general uh, astronomy? We are very hopeful that that can happen, and particularly thinking about the large optical telescopes and radio telescopes that are going to be built in the future um, to do these kinds of surveys. And they are already planning on capturing vast amounts of data that will be available for analysis looking for different types of signals. There's already one example that is at least has me a little bit intrigued mm-hmm. um, in searching through very large databases that have been generated um, in a survey to detect pulsars across the sky. And pulsars are natural radio sources. They're kind of like radio lighthouse beacons. They're rotating neutron stars that have a radio beam, which when it rotates into view of the Earth, produces a, a pulse. And uh, they're very, very regular. They're, they're like very precise clocks on the sky. And there are many reasons for studying pulsars, and so astronomers are trying to find all of the pulsars on the sky. They do these big surveys and then they look through the database. Um, And at first, looking through the Pulsar databases, the astronomers um, looked at a limited set of parameters within which to find these Pulsars. And again, as computing capability has gotten to be much more affordable, they've gone back through the databases, expanding the range of parameters that they search. And in doing so, they have found a class of signals that we're calling fast radio bursts, or Furbies. Um, And these are signals that look like a very highly dispersed pulse, but they don't repeat. These individual pulses last for less than a thousandth of a second. Mm -hmm. And because of the dispersion, because of the different rates at which different frequencies in the signal are detected, the different times, um, we, the astronomers are inferring that these signals come from a very great distance away at extragalactic distances. And if that's the case, then because they are detected at the radio telescope with a significant amount of power, it means that that intrinsically they're enormously energetic phenomena because the signals will get weaker as they travel through intergalactic space and then through the galaxy to the telescope. So this um, new class of fast radio bursts is intriguing because we don't know what the source of these singular, very short, very energetic pulses might be. But now somebody like me sits and looks at that and says, you know, a technology could chirp a signal, could modify a signal in just such a way that the higher frequencies show up first before the lower frequency components of the signal and have a particular curved shape that would look as if it were natural interstellar and intergalactic scattering. But is such an extreme signal that it will cause attention to be drawn to it. So I look at these and say, hmm, that could also be um, a deliberately engineered signal. And so there are, I think, now eight 
of these signals have been found at two different telescopes and published, and I think there may be a, a, a few more that haven't yet reached the literature. And from that small sample, we're trying to decide if they're coming from with the same probability. That is, they have an isotropic distribution, or whether they're maybe coming from a selected area of the sky. And it's, it's really hard to do these statistics with so few samples. Um, if they're isotropic, I think the astronomers are going to win out, and these are distant energetic sources, which are going to be exciting because we have to figure out what they are. But if, in fact, the distribution is, is confined to a certain region of the sky, then, then this engineered explanation becomes a little bit more interesting. So, yes, your idea that databases can be searched for uh, deliberately engineered signals as well as the natural searches that we're doing is a good one, and I hope it will continue and be expanded upon in the future. And uh, do we have an estimated time frame for this study? This is a hot topic, and there are a lot of radio astronomers who are trying to modify their detectors mm -hmm. so that they can do meaningful surveys for these short pulses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, it's happening now. Uh, now, search for extraterrestrial intelligence is one thing, but the rate with which we have identified exoplanets over past 10-15 years, it's amazing. Uh, again... Oh, uh, it's staggering. Uh, even if it is not about E.T., these alien worlds, th this is a fascinating time. Oh, it's, it's amazing, and it's such a fruitful scientific time. Mm -hmm. um, these exoplanetary systems are turning out to be, some of them, quite different than our own. Um, I like to think about <laughs> before we started finding these exoplanets, uh, we were trying to figure out how planets form, and we would make computer models, and we'd run the computer models, and it was really interesting because, you know, these, these models all came out kind of looking like the solar system. All the planets were going around in circular orbits in a nice flat plane, and the big gas giants were on the outside, and the, the little rocky planets were on the inside. And we thought, oh, well, this is the way all planetary systems are going to be. Well, no, it was really um, the problem of having only an example of one and the biases that that puts on everything. The very first exoplanet that was found around a main-sequence star was like the mass of Jupiter, but it was so close to its star that its period was only... 4.3 days, as opposed to 15 years. Mm -hmm. So this was eye-opening. This was a big wake-up call for astronomers. And now, because we have all these different planetary systems in different kinds of configurations, we're just rewriting the books about what we think is important in the formation of, of planets and a planetary system. And we've learned so much more because we have an example of more than one. So it's a really exciting time. And, and now what I'm excited about is the potential for an example of more than one when it comes to life. So far we have only life as we know it on this planet. Um, but now there's the potential, potential. I didn't say it's a reality, but it's a potential, a real potential for finding evidence of life on other planets within our own solar system or on planets or moons orbiting other stars. And so, wow, it's phenomenal. And, and a, a parallel, or at least parallel in time, field of research which has exploded um, is the study of extremophiles, finding organisms that live in conditions that you and I couldn't tolerate but in which they are delightfully happy because millions of years of evolution have suited them to be living in boiling battery acid or at the bottom of the ocean in the hot smokers. 
um, where magma is coming up from the crust or in the the cooling waters of um, of uh, nuclear reactors in this huge radiation field. So extremophiles are phenomenal and extending <coughs> the limits of what we thought was appropriate for life. So these microbes are finally getting the respect they deserve and they're teaching us a great deal about the limits of life and perhaps indicating that there's potentially more habitable real estate out there than we once might have thought. So the whole field is wide open and it's, it's extraordinarily exciting. You mentioned extremophiles uh, a few moments ago and uh, my next question is about extremophiles. Uh, Jill, as you mentioned, recent research on extremophiles suggest that uh, life at microbial level has an amazing flexibility for surviving in extreme environments. Uh, there is an emerging view that not only life can exist in environments previously considered inhabitable, perhaps it can also travel through space from one planet to another planet. Uh, what is your take on this? Well, one of the things that we're learning from studying all these exoplanetary systems is how chaotic the process of planetary formation is. And we're coming to appreciate that early on in the formation of our solar system, there were many collisions of large bodies and small bodies. And the result was that at least the terrestrial planets, Earth and Mars and Venus, exchanged rocks early in the formation process of the solar system. And so it's a real possibility that life might have begun on the planet Mars early when Mars was wetter and warmer mm -hmm. and then been transferred by some collision, a, a rock in which a microbe or many microbes was was protected could have traveled the distance between Mars and the Earth in a random way, taking millions of years, and finally landed on the Earth, and perhaps that was the origin of life on Earth. Maybe, maybe it seeded life here. So as we go back and as we go to Mars with the intention of looking for evidence of extant existing or fossil evidence of life on Mars, we have to be really very careful um, to avoid forward contamination, that is, bringing our form of life to Mars, mm -hmm. because if we find microbial life on Mars, we are going to be want to ask the question, is it related to life on Earth? Is it the same? So are, in fact, are we Martians? And energetically, it's much more likely that rocks transferred from Mars to Earth than Earth to Mars because our potential gravitational well is deeper. It's harder to get rocks um, off the Earth and captured by Mars. Uh, so the real question is whether any microbial life we find on Mars might be a second genesis, might be an independent origin of life that would be phenomenal um, for a number of reasons. One, if you find a second genesis in this solar system, it means that life will be ubiquitous out there in the universe. Couldn't have happened twice here in this one solar system and not have happened elsewhere. That's, so that's the first thing you learn. And the second thing you learn is now you've got a different biology. You no longer have N of 1, but you have N of 2. And with a second type or example of biology, you can begin to understand what was necessary and what was just contingent in the origin of life here and biology as we know it. So that N of 2 is really very, very important. And, and we're eager to begin these explorations. Along with Mars and uh, exoplanets, 
a number of moons orbiting planets in our solar system are worth exploring. Uh, these fascinating alien worlds have very interesting features and properties. That's right. These marvelous large moons that, in the case of Jupiter's moons, um, Callisto, Ganymede, Europa, um, which are ice-covered, we're pretty sure that there are very large volumes of liquid, salty oceans beneath that ice. Um, and in the case of um, Titan, the large moon of Saturn, we know there are liquid lakes on the surface of Titan. Now, these lakes aren't water. They're organics like ethane and methane, but organics, which might be the basis of some kind of organic chemistry and potentially biology at slow rates because it's very cold there. But they're exciting. And also, Titan has a little tiny moon called Enceladus. Not much to write home about until Cassini, as it was orbiting, um, I said Titan has the moon, Saturn has the moon. Saturn has the moon, yeah. Enceladus is the moon of of Saturn, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the Cassini spacecraft orbiting Saturn has seen coming out of the south polar regions of that tiny little moon, these cryo-volcanoes, water ice and organics coming out of what apparently is a subsurface ocean on Enceladus as well. And then, even more recently, we've seen the same kind of activity in the south polar regions of Europa. So suddenly, we've gone from thinking about how we can create missions that could land on the surface and drill or melt through this icy outer covering um, in a in a way that is uh, doesn't transfer any microbes is sterile um, to thinking about well actually maybe all we have to do is fly through these cryovolcanoes and sample whatever's coming out from the oceans and that might be a really much simpler way to do a sample return mission or a mission that that in situ can analyze the constituents of those um, permanently covered oceans. So we're really, really excited about that opportunity. And of course, exomoons of um, large planets around other stars could also be suitable for um, origins of life. It's, it's a little harder, but maybe that's just because we have a lack of imagination to understand how that subterranean environment could support technological civilizations that could build optical or radio transmitters because technology usually requires fire to forge metal and things like that. So we're not so sure whether technologies could flourish there, but life might flourish there. There's just a lot of opportunity that we'd like to explore. Mm-hmm. Do you think that soon we will find a planet that is habitable, like our own Earth, perhaps Earth 2? Well, we're certainly trying to figure out ways to remotely detect um, the presence of biology on a distant planet. Uh, this is a field that's um, involved with looking for biosignatures trying to analyze the atmospheres of these distant planets, looking for the kind of disequilibrium chemistry that characterizes Earth's atmosphere. We have, at the same time in our atmosphere, molecular oxygen and molecular methane. Because on the surface of the planet we have photosynthesizers producing oxygen and methanogens, and, and bovine flatulence, CALFART, producing methane. So these gases are interacting in the atmosphere all the time and going to their equilibrium state of, of water vapor and carbon dioxide. But because the biology is so vigorous on our planetary surface, we still have the coexistence of these two 
gases. And we're wondering whether there are similar fingerprints that we could see in the atmospheres of distant planets by doing an, a spectroscopic analysis, an assay of the um, constituents of the atmospheres. And this is, this is a more difficult problem to solve because um, there are, for some of these signatures, there are ways of producing the chemical constituents abiotically, that is, through geological processes rather than from biological processes. So this one is, is more nuanced, um, and it will certainly take uh, telescopes in space that are more capable than any that we have today. It's a hard measurement, but it's, it's something that we're working towards. Jill, you say in your presentations that you worry about hoaxes. Uh, can you tell us about the verification mechanisms that SETI has put in place in case a signal uh, seems like coming from an intelligent civilization? Well, I I won't be too detailed because I would not really like to help people that might be trying to perpetrate a hoax to, to do so. But <laughs> yes, I mean... Uh, we will use all of the equipment that we have at our disposal at the discovery site to try and figure out whether this signal we've detected is actually coming from a distant technology or whether it might be generated locally, um, either by our own satellites or by someone deliberately trying to, to fool us. And after we've exhausted what we can do at our the discovery observatory, um, then we will try and get an independent confirmation by another observatory with equipment that we didn't build and software that we didn't write. Um, so I think that we are, we are very mindful of deliberate hoaxes. We know that we would not do ourselves any good at all to cry wolf. Um, and so if and when we ever um, claim to have made a discovery and release that discovery data to the world, um, we can be pretty sure that uh, it isn't a hoax. If a signal were detected, how would SETI announce it? Would it be kept secret or would it be made public immediately? I believe there is a post-detection task force at SETI to look uh, after this uh, aspect? Th there is a post-detection task force mm -hmm. and it's part of the standing committee on SETI and the International um, Academy of Astronautics. And um, this is a, a general set of guidelines which say do your science well, verify that what you have is, is what you think it is, and then tell the world. And that's what we intend to do. But while we are trying to verify it, we will we will try and control the information about the signal because we wouldn't, you know, as soon as it leaks out, we're going to have less opportunity to um, to focus on the work that we're trying to do to confirm the signal. Um, but we're we're mindful that. Our, our attempts at confirmation are likely to take days or weeks and, and the signal, the information about the signal may well leak out before we're prepared, but, but we'll just deal with that. And in your view, how would the discovery of life out there impact us as a civilization? I think that it um, would fundamentally change everything and change how we see ourselves. Um, today, we live on this very fragile island of life, and we are perpetually cutting it up into smaller and smaller islands and tribes. Um, if you have another intelligent civilization out there with which to compare yourself, to take this much longer view of who we are and how we fit into the universe, then I think it has to trivialize the differences among us over which we're willing to, to shed blood. I think it, is, it will inevitably make us appreciate 
that we're all the same. We're all earthlings when compared to something independently evolved and far away. And finally, uh, what are major developments and breakthroughs that you envisage in the field of astronomy and search for extraterrestrial uh, intelligence in next 50 to 60 years? Oh, 50 to 60 years is is a very far future to um, to forecast, but um, I I expect to see a great deal of innovation in new ways of exploring. We have historically um, done the exploration with large missions that take a long time to conceive of and build, and we're very risk-averse. We don't want any of these to fail. I think with the whole new space economy, uh, I think we're going to adopt a new posture and be willing to try new, smaller, innovative things um, and allow some of them to fail so that some of them can succeed. And although we've, in some sense, done the easy things, right, and now the next missions for biomarkers or biosignatures are harder or more distant targets for SETI require mm, um, larger instruments, there may be a way to build the larger capability out of smaller instruments. And I think that's where we're going to go. And then I expect to be surprised. I expect that some small um, innovative technique that hasn't been tried at all, that's looking in some totally different way, is going to stumble across something that will surprise us all. And we'll go from there. Dr. Jill Tarter, thank you very much for being with us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, and I'm glad we finally made the landlines work. Thank you very much, Jill, okay. and bye-bye. Bye-bye.